0: Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Michael Schellenberger on San Francisco. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the current events in politics or technology category for episode number 130 with Nicole Perlroth on This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends.
1: This is Nicole Perlroth. My book is called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling.
0: Hello readers. Michael Schellenberger is an environmental and social justice advocate, journalist, and best-selling author. His newest book is titled San Francisco: Why Progressives Ruin Cities. Michael, thank you for the time. How are you doing today?
1: Good, thanks for having me, Trey.
0: It's my pleasure, Michael. This is a subject that impacts a lot of people right now. I myself am in Austin, which for a long time I have uh, vented frustrations on the air about Austin's attempts to turn itself into San Francisco. Now, I don't have a ton of experience in San Francisco. Starting in about 2008 through 2018, I visited San Francisco on a number of different occasions. And at first, I love the city. It has a certain energy about it that I am just drawn to. But in that 10 years, I saw a city that just continued to go downhill. And I saw Austin making a lot, a lot of the same mistakes that San Francisco was making early on. So I guess for somebody who's not familiar with what's been going on in San Francisco, uh, what has happened in the last five years to make the homeless population and the homeless situation so bad there?
1: Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great question. It's obviously the question that uh, motivated me to write the book in the first place. How much of this is recent and how much of it is old? You know, obviously it's both, you know, on the one hand, San Francisco's had a very strong open drug scene that's existed arguably since the sixties. It has, you know, it was one of the last cities to ban opium dens in the early 20th century. It's, you know, it had homeless, it had heroin addicts that congregated outside of, you know, the BART station, which is the subway station near my home, near my apartment in San Francisco in the early nineties. And then it seems, you know, and then you kind of go last 15 years, last five years, last year, it just keeps getting worse and worse. Um, So it's basically, I think I describe in the book, I think it's most accurate to refer to what's what. What we see when you go to San Francisco, which is an open drug scene, I think it's been misidentified as homeless encampments. Those are euphemistic words. They misdescribe why people are on the street. People are not on the street because rents are expensive. It's true that rents are expensive, but that's not why people are on the street. We don't have open drug scenes in Carmel or Palo Alto or Beverly Hills. They exist um, in you know particular places because san francisco has made a decision not to um, enforce camping laws same thing in austin you know there's always other there's always different factors but ultimately i concluded that you have open drug scenes where the government allows open drug scenes you know you can break them up you can provide you know people with psychiatric or addiction care you can just threaten to lock people up or lock people up but Either way, the open drug scene exists because the society allows it.
0: After getting elected mayor of San Francisco in 2003, Gavin Newsom put together a task force consisting of representatives from the city's most prominent players to create a 10-year plan on combating homelessness. What was the plan, and why has it failed so miserably since then?
1: Sure. Well, you pinpointed a really critical moment in the evolution of this this issue, which was that San Francisco was the pioneer of something called housing first, which is the idea that everybody that wants a house or an apartment should get one for free without conditions. And that's a, that was a change from a previous policy that had existed, whereby people would have to earn housing through either, you know, abstinence or making progress on their personal plan, including psychiatric care for the mentally ill. That was dropped in the early 2000s. Really, by 2005, it became federal policy, not just San Francisco policy, that we certainly followed it more than anyone else. And the idea was that if you just give people their own apartment, they'll stabilize and be more open to services, that shelters are just unhumane. And that was the basic idea. And it's been a disaster, not just in San Francisco, but any city that's attempted it. It's been a disaster to have this housing first policy. What we need and what civilized cities do is they have a shelter first policy that everybody has to sleep in shelter. You don't get to sleep in camp anywhere you want. That's not consistent with civilization. That people have access to treatment right away, uh, whether it's rehab or psychiatric care or both. And that housing is something that you earn, that we might have some amount of housing available for people. Uh, But they you don't just get it without uh, working towards it. You have to make progress on your plan. And it may not be in downtown San Francisco, one of the most expensive real estate markets in the world. It might be somewhere else. That's what we need to do. It's not what we do. And as a result, that's why we have these open drug scenes um, in San Francisco and other progressive cities. As far as the open
0: drug scenes go, a lot of folks in these areas will initially call for legalizing or decriminalizing all drugs and often pointing to Portugal and showing that it works. But why is that comparison a bit more nuanced than is typically acknowledged, Michael?
1: Yeah, I like every day almost I have to respond like like every time I tweet about this, I usually have to tweet out like, you know, half dozen or dozen times to people that claim that Portugal legalized all drugs it's not true. I interviewed the head of Portugal's drug policy program, I actually video record it and put it on Twitter so people can can listen to him in his own words. I asked him what happens if you're shooting heroin in public Portugal. He said you would be arrested if you have more than the amount allowed. Um, that would be if you have above the amount um, of which is a misdemeanor, then you'd be you know, you know tried for felony distribution. If you're caught, you know, using drugs publicly with drugs, then you're brought before a commission for the dissuasion of addiction, which includes law enforcement, includes, you know, psychiatric help, social workers, but also your family members. And Portugal is a very tight knit, you know, small little bit of coast there on Europe. It's not anywhere near as violent or dangerous as California, but they still they still have a huge amount of coercion. We know this about addiction. We know that people require intervention. We've known it for over 150 years. This is not a surprise to anybody. Everybody that's had any experience with addiction is that addicts need some kind of intervention. They often need coercion. Many need to be arrested. Many need to be threatened with jail or prison um, as the motivation to clean up their acts. It's just a function, a a part of the concept, one of the characteristics of the disease. So we just stopped doing that because we got it in our heads, at least the progressive leadership of progressive cities got it in their heads, that that was somehow immoral, that that was blaming the victim, that it was contributing to the victimization of of victims, and that to victims everything should be given and nothing required. And it's just not how it works in Europe or anywhere else. Speaking
0: of Europe, you went to the Netherlands a couple different times in 2019 to find out why Amsterdam which obviously has very lax laws on cannabis and some other drugs, as well as prostitution, why they don't have a big issue with homelessness. What did you learn there?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first I was there for working on, I work mostly, I have over the last two decades worked mostly on environmental issues. I was there giving a speech on nuclear energy. I met the, I was with a member of parliament. Her husband's an expert on drug policy. He was involved in shutting down the open drug scene in Amsterdam in the late 80s. And I asked him, I was like, have you been to San Francisco? You know, they kind of said, oh, yeah, we have. We've seen it. And I was like, what's going on? (laughs) And he was like, you know, Mike, you got to use carrots and sticks. You can't just, you know, this namby-pamby thing of letting people do whatever they want anywhere. It's really not. It's just unique to San Francisco and other progressive cities. It's not what Europe does. He also pointed out, you know, they do have sufficient shelter space. They do have sufficient psychiatric beds in the hospitals for people that need it. They are not uh, moralizers. People can take methadone or Suboxone as an opioid replacement therapy. You know, they allow marijuana. Marijuana is basically decriminalized in Amsterdam. So is sex work. So these these are not a prude city. So I wanted to use Amsterdam because... Those of us that live in San Francisco we are very we think we're very cosmopolitan in fact we're very provincial in our in our ignorance but hmm. we think we're cosmopolitan so I wanted to hold up Amsterdam as a model of a city that had a serious addiction problem had serious open drug scenes dealt with it in the same way that everybody does in a really humane way and now they have some of the best psychiatric care of any country in the world and very low rates of drug deaths uh, the washington post just after it became clear that the United States had over a hundred thousand people die in, um, from April, 2020 to April, 2021, Amsterdam's rate of drug deaths is almost it's like one 15th of ours, you know, an order of magnitude less. And so they've managed to have a very liberal open society, very compassionate society, but one that doesn't allow, Uh, our brothers and sisters to die on the streets or for the cities to just become ruined by open-air drug scenes.
0: In 2010, UCLA sociologist Neil Gong studied two different drug treatment programs in greater Los Angeles. What did he learn?
1: Well, this is really interesting research. It was done by a sociologist. There's been very good uh, social science research of, uh, street addicts in California, but also the mentally ill. It's a very fascinating study. I mean, what basically he found is that, you know, the rich celebrities and others who go to the rehab in Malibu, you know, which is very expensive, it's like 30 to 50 grand a month or something to get cleaned up that they're very strict (laughs) on, (laughs) on people suffering from addiction. They're not namby pamby. Um, you go there to get your ass kicked and to get clean and to get recovered. And by contrast, Skid Row, it's just um, really hands off. Um, There's definitely, you know, supposedly there's financial issues, but I point out in the book that we spend more money per capita than anybody else on mental health in California and have the worst outcomes. We have a $31 billion budget surplus this year because, you know, it's where all the tech companies are. So we have really, we have many, many billionaires in California. And and we have all this money and we're not using it because we're not actually willing to involuntarily care for people, including when they break the law. So, yeah, I mean, for a lot of people, they need that. They need something to really require care, whether it's psychiatric or drug addiction. We're very libertarian in the United States and in California. So I don't think that there's any appetite. I certainly don't have any appetite for arresting people peacefully if suicidally using fentanyl and meth in the privacy of their own homes. But if people are publicly camping, publicly using drugs, public defecation, shoplifting, these are crimes that should be enforced. And then they are opportunities for people to get the psychiatric care or the addiction care that they need. You mentioned the
0: amount that California spends. It is a shocking number to think about. And that speaks to uh, something that you label the homeless industrial complex that exists in both San Francisco and across the state as well. Just how bad is this with people whose livelihoods depend on homelessness remaining an issue for years beyond our current time?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a concern. I, you know, I I don't. I think here's what I'll say about it. There's a lot of money being made, and the money that's being made circulates back to the politicians, particularly around housing. So if you're paying, which is what we're paying, between seven hundred fifty thousand and a million dollars per apartment unit. For this so-called housing first policy, those builders and everybody involved in that process make a lot of money. And then that money is recycled back into political candidates who maintain these policies. So there's definitely financial interest at work here. The charities that get big contracts with the city then mobilize their members and others to vote for those candidates. But I will say that, you know there's always going to have to be some entity providing these services, you know, and in the Netherlands where they do a really great job, they have large contracts with Salvation Army and they provide 2000 workers, but you don't, but Salvation Army isn't ruining the Netherlands approach to street addicts or mentally ill people. So I don't think that the fact that you have a contracting, you have contracts with financial entities, I don't think that alone explains the problem. I think it's really an ideological issue. It's really the radical left, what we call progressives, the idea that it's victim ideology, the idea that we can categorize some people as victims and some people as oppressors and that to victims, we should give everything and demand nothing. That's very ideologically driven. And so ultimately, I do think that many of these service providers, they need to be organized differently. You need to centralize care at the state level and make it hierarchical and more efficient. But ultimately, you know, some of these these nonprofit service providers would have to exist under a new system and they would just need to be organized under the logic of a shelter first, treatment first, housing earned system rather than the current housing first system.
0: Michael, how did San Francisco chef and restaurant owner Adam Mesnick enlighten you on the city's
1: homelessness issue? So Adam Mesnick is a really delightful character. He's a very salty (laughs) transplant from Ohio. He's a restaurant owner, but he's very real, very street savvy. He started hanging out with the street addicts around his restaurants in an area of a big open drug scene in South of market, San Francisco. He's basically become like a street anthropologist. Uh, He just holds up his cell phone and, and, and interviews people on the street, talking about their problems. And he I, I was very interested in him as a character because he's a bit uh, he's sort of, you know, put down a lot by people in San Francisco who think he's too crude or there's these taboos on just acknowledging the fact that people are on drugs. You know, this is an addiction problem. So I really loved Adam's story in which you quickly see is that he's a heart of gold. He's really one of the few people that really has so much compassion for the people on the street. He actually feeds them and helps them. But he said to me, you know, they say they come here to die, you know, the addicts that come here to die. And I was like, is that literal or figurative? Because, of course, two people are dying every day. And he was like, I don't know, but that's what they say. And a lot of people are overdose and they die. They're resuscitated. Um, it's a really dark situation. And he was the first one to really be out there and just say, you know, look, if there's no intervention, then we're just going to keep letting people die of fentanyl. Over 712 people last year, probably a similar amount this year. Every single one of those people could be saved. There's no reason to let 700 of our fellow humans die on the street like we're doing.
0: What is contingency management intervention and why is it effective in helping the mentally ill?
1: Contingent management. So, contingent management is what I was referring to when I say housing earned. So, shelter first, housing earned. You can't sleep on the street. You can go into the shelter. If you want your own private room, that would be something that people could earn through abstinence or or going through with psychiatric care, taking their meds if they need to take their meds, or even making progress on their personal plan in other ways, like going to a job or something. And so it's the word contingency just means that your housing is contingent on your behavior. It's really the only thing that is proven to work with many forms of addiction, particularly uh, stimulant addictions, which are very difficult because there's no Substitute. There's no replacement therapy like with methadone or suboxone for heroin and fentanyl addicts. So for meth and cocaine addicts, the re- It's a reward-based system. So the rewards provide us, the housing provides a reward as a substitute for the reward that people get from using drugs. So I show that really we've had decades now of research showing that contingent contingency management is really the most effective way to treat addiction. And naturally, San Francisco and other progressive cities have demonized it you know as blaming the victim or or mistreating victims which is absurd it's it's in fact the main thing that's helped people to get to get free of their addictions
0: and is that playing into the persecutor victim rescuer game
1: yeah i was very interested in this idea it's it's a very common thing for people for progressives to accuse each other of blaming the victim that's a very common phrase and i was interested in where it came from and it really came in a book written in 1970 by a psychologist called Blaming the Victim. And I discovered that around the same time, psychologists had identified the ways in which people play different roles and in different interactions, just, you know, both functional and dysfunctional ones. But one of the ways is that people, you know, they people, people blame the victim, but also there's this idea of people playing the victim, people saying, oh, I'm a victim of the system. I need money. Just help me. It's a way that addicts use to manipulate people. It's actually why I I finally stopped giving money to addicts because I understood it was all just manipulative to get drugs. I always sort of knew that, but it all really confirms it. And then, and then rescuing, you know, rescuing, it's something that all of us, I think, as bleeding heart liberals struggle with wanting to help people, wanting to rescue them. But really giving money to addicts is like the worst thing you can do. It just perpetuates the addiction it seems cruel to say no, but it's actually the most humane thing. But you see a lot of liberal do-gooder types want to play the rescuer. And it actually just ends up, um, and this is the paradox of it, of course, it just ends up victimizing people worse. And the way to break out of all three of those, playing the victim, blaming the victim, um, rescuing the victim, is to treat people like adults with responsibilities people that are capable of making choices even under situations of addiction and mental illness and that means um, moving away from this enabling of addiction and towards a more contingent approach where yeah i think taxpayers have some things to offer shelter psychiatric care rehab but that there's conditions and and that and that you've got to follow the law and you've got to stick with your program or there are gonna be consequences for your behavior.
0: Words are incredibly powerful. As you point out in San Francisco uh, San Francisco, words like bum, vagrant, hobo, and transient fell out of favor in the nineteen eighties and into the nineteen nineties in favor of the more politically correct homeless term. But as you write, quote, as soon as you use the word homeless, you find yourself trapped. Within a powerful discourse, one that manipulates our thinking and feelings. What do you mean by this,
1: Michael? Well, the word "homeless," and now, by the way, they've—it's—it's it's, the escalation of these words has continued. It's now you um, just to say "unhoused" <laughs> or people experiencing homelessness. Um, I think it's called like euphemistic escalation or something like that. But basically, the the idea is to trick your brain into thinking that the people on the street are there because they're poor. They couldn't afford the rents. That's just not true. I, I could find zero people that were living in a tent on the sidewalk because they just couldn't afford the rent. If that were the case, if people were just like, that's if that was the way people behaved, you would see all these people on the streets of Carmel or Beverly Hills or the really fashionable neighborhoods, and we don't. The more typical picture is that people become addicted to drugs. They stop working because they have to shoot heroin or do meth every few hours during the day. They steal or borrow from family and friends until they're eventually cut off and they go live um, in the open air drug scene of, of the cities, which are euphemistically referred to as homeless encampments. So the word homeless is a propaganda word. I just think it's manipulative. It was deliberately chosen to be manipulative in the 1980s. This is not my claim. This is, the, this is something that's been pointed out by historians of the homeless epidemic. I mean, most of the, a lot of the people in the 1980s who were called homeless were suffering from crack addiction, often crack and alcohol. That was kind of the first big drug-driven so-called homelessness epidemic in the 80s. Since then, it's just gotten worse. It's meth, it's heroin, it's fentanyl, all layered on top of each other. So the word homeless, it just badly serves people who are sick and need medical care and and trying to make them trying to confuse those people with people that are just down on their luck or a mom escaping an abusive husband. It's just manipulative and wrong.
0: In the summer of 2020, people tried to create a lawless tent city utopia in downtown Seattle. How did the area known as Chaz and then Chop
1: ultimately turn out? Well, it was a total disaster. I mean, this occurred right during the Black Lives Matters protest in Seattle. A bunch of out-of-town anarchists, mostly white, uh, demanded that they'd be able to take over a, uh, a three-square block area of the downtown. And the city council, the progressive city council, the progressive mayor allowed them to do that. And the police left the precinct building. And this area was so-called self-governed by these anarchists. Eventually, they invited in all the addicts, all the street addicts came in to stay there. There were rapes. And finally, two African-American minors were killed. That was eventually an instigation for the police to break it up, but not not with, this, not with the support of the city council. In fact, over the resistance from members of the city council who thought this was somehow progressive. So, yeah, I mean, the Capitol Hill occupied protest, it was an absolute disaster. It was very confusing for people. Like, who? Nobody agreed to give up their personal safety to a bunch of unaccountable people. I mean, that's why we pay our police is to provide us protection. So I felt like it was a really important moment in the breakdown of civilization on the West Coast. It was something that really hadn't happened before, but I think speaks to the ways in which You know, this concern for the victim just goes way too far and ends up creating victims. Thankfully, here
0: in Austin, voters were given the opportunity to overturn the public camping allowance. Despite Mayor Steve Adler's attempts to turn it into a partisan issue, this very progressive city overturned that because people saw how cruel it was to those living on the streets and how it was also very harmful for the city itself. California is obviously overdue for a shift in how they are trying to conduct their business in San Francisco and Los Angeles and elsewhere. Do you see any signs that's beginning to happen? Are these cities giving voters an opportunity to try and make this decision for themselves?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's one step forward, one step back, right? I mean, Austin, on the one hand, the voters rejected uh, the public campaign. On the other hand, they rejected an increase of police. San Francisco, Voters elected these progressives that are in power. On the other hand, they're now looking to recall the district attorney. So I think voters are really confused. It's part of why I wrote San Francisco is I felt like people were just really confused about what's going on and why it matters and what the right approach is. But I think we're at the early stages. You know, the radical left, the progressives have been much better organized for the last 20 years. They've got tens of millions of dollars from George Soros. And others, there's not really any counter movement and we're finding each other. My colleagues and I have created something called the California Peace Coalition to pull together people from San Francisco and Los Angeles, both parents of, of street addicts, but also parents of kids who have died of fentanyl, recovering addicts, community leaders. So I think we're starting to see a resistance uh, to these policies form and it's going to be different than in the past. Uh of us are also concerned. We don't want mass incarceration. We don't want to return to the violence and the over-incarceration of the drug war of the 1980s. At the same time, we want to see a greater emphasis on public order, public safety, personal responsibility. We think those things have roles to play and that things have just gotten too out of balance. And I think that that ultimately will succeed. We have seen a backlash in New York already with the election of a more moderate, former police officer, as mayor. And I do think we're headed for, um, I think we're in the midst of a serious backlash in progressive cities even. In fact, a Republican was just elected to the new city attorney of Seattle. So I think that will continue to happen. It'll be two steps forward, one step back. But nonetheless, I think that the direction of travel is pretty clear at this point.
0: On the subject of potential solutions, what is CalPsych?
1: CalPsych is a It's really the name that we've given for a new state agency that we believe should take over from the counties you know part of the problem with street addicts is they're very transient many of them have come from out of town many of them are escaping from the law been arrested elsewhere and california doesn't really have a good way to take care of those folks so we end up it's sort of squeezing the balloon and people end up going to different parts of california so cal Psych argues that really to get anything done in our society you need to have a hierarchy And it needs to be centralized so that if you arrest somebody or just revive somebody from an overdose, that you have a rehab facility for them. You have sufficient shelter space, you have psychiatric beds, you have empowered uh, social workers who have the assertive case management. They're able to help people get the help they need, but also make sure that people have somewhere to go after they get out of rehab or get out of prison. I think it's a way to both prevent mass incarceration, but also prevent mass homelessness. It would partner with law enforcement. It would try to do as much as, as it could without having to engage in, in arresting or threatening incarceration, but it certainly would work with law enforcement to make sure that that happened. So Cal psych is really a straw proposal. It's a vision of what we think needs to be done. We've given it to basically both political parties to run with. Uh, we've started to see some interest in it, but it seems like it's a, it's an acknowledgement that really the counties on their own can't solve this.
0: And I wanted to finish off today's conversation by asking you about Harvey Milk, of course, one of San Francisco's most notable and important figures. What is an aspect of his story that is lesser known that may help out with this overall conversation on how to correct some of the damage done in America's most progressive cities in dealing with the homelessness issues that exist across the country?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. One of my favorite things I discovered in my research was that Harvey Milk, who of course is the famous the famous gay rights leader, San Francisco supervisor, famously assassinated, they made a movie out of him played by Sean Penn who won the Oscar for his performance, but Harvey Milk is a real hero, local hero in San Francisco of course. And I pointed out that Milk actually ran as a gay candidate Twice and lost. He eventually won because he drew attention to an issue of public health, which was that San Franciscans were not picking up their dog waste, <laughs> and he made a big show of stepping in dog waste. and And he passed. Le- he said he would pass legislation that would ban or that would basically allow police to fine people who allowed their dogs to defecate and not pick up after them. And then I sort of used that as a springboard to describing the human feces problem in San Francisco. And that really, it requires more than any specific law. It does require changing laws. It does require electing new leaders, but really it requires the change in us who live here, a change in our attitudes, taking responsibility and using peer pressure because ultimately the laws are just representations of the will of the people and the people we've got to get our heads screwed on right. And I think for a long time, we've just treated people that are suffering addiction and mental illnesses they are just poor they're just victims and that's not good enough. We really need to grow up a bit with our views of ourselves and the people that are suffering because our own discomfort, but also just, you know, I d- desire to rescue people has really backfired and it's actually been really harm for the people that we think we're trying to take care of. I knew San Francisco was in a
0: bad way, Michael, when somebody pointed out to me a website that literally let people know where the largest amassment of human excrement was around the city. That was a very bad point for the city, and I want to say that was like six or seven years ago.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's crazy how much we spend on it. Uh, you know, we spend I think four times more than Chicago does, even though Chicago is four times bigger. Um, I'm not sure. I can't remember if those are the exact numbers, but it's really crazy, and it's obviously a result of just having all these people on the street and allowing that, rather than requiring them to get in shelter and to get the care they need. So we're dealing with end of pipe problems, to use a word from from public health or from the environment. We need to be dealing with the people that are in serious need that are suffering from real sickness. The title of the book, San Francisco, refers both to the people suffering addiction and mental illness living on the streets, but it also refers to this to sort of a compassion sickness, this idea that anything can go too far and just caring and loving and compassion on its own without any, without any role for discipline or, or responsibility or reciprocity um, is a recipe for disaster. It's no good for the people who are suffering and it's no good for the people who live here.
0: Showing compassion means not enabling those who are suffering the biggest problems. He is Michael Schellenberger, an environmental and social justice advocate, journalist, and bestselling author. Previously, he joined the show to talk about Apocalypse Never. He's come back on now to discuss his newest book titled San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Michael, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this important book.
1: Thanks for having me, Trey. Thanks for being such a thoughtful reader.
0: Join me next time when I speak with award-winning professor and writer Bartow Elmore on Seed Money, Monsanto's Past, and Our Food Future. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.